remember when you were students and your teacher said, uh, we're going to review for the exam. We were all ears because if we hadn't taken notes during class, it's like now the answers are going to come. So we're going to start with a review this morning, but before we do that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your words, ancient words. Words which change our heart, change our lives. We pray that that would be your power at work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This review is for my sake as much as yours. Um, Jumping into Romans, when we've been going now for several months, I feel like I'm riding down the on-ramp into the freeway at rush hour on my moped uh, and trying to keep up. Um, You have the translation for you that uh, I'll be referring to from the New Living Translation. I study with lots of different versions, uh, ESV, RSV, um, NIV, and then I love to use the message as a commentary. So those are going to be appearing today. Um, I'll try to cite them whenever possible. So let's, let's look at the first seven chapters of Romans in a quick review. Romans is the gospel according to Paul. Chapter 1 answers the question, what is the nature of the gospel? And of course, that famous verse in Romans uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's what the gospel is. It's a righteousness from God. And that's what we've been talking about now with Ron for the last several weeks. Chapter 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's an understatement for Paul, who lived his whole life, at least the second half of his life, in radical commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, he exhibited an extreme commitment to the truth of the gospel. second half of chapter 1, as you recall, shows the desperate need for the gospel of humanity and God's judgment upon the sin of the world. Chapter 1, second half, looks like uh, the morning news as you read it. Chapter 2 answers the question, who needs the gospel? Who is it for? Well, if Paul's readers are Jewish readers, then they're saying, oh, it's those Gentiles, those dirty Gentiles that need the gospel. Paul says, no, you, you Jewish believers, you need the gospel too. So as the message reads, no matter what neighborhood you grew up in, what your parents taught you, or what schools you went to, no one is off the hook. Everyone needs the gospel. Every person, every nation the whole world. Chapter 3, what is the outcome of the gospel? Actually, it continues something of the theme of chapter 2 as it shows that all, all are unrighteous, not even one fears God, all have sinned, we're all in the same seeking boat. You know, we don't even need the Bible to show us that. 
In the 12th century, two Buddhist priests, Honen and Shindan, realized, this was their conclusion, we cannot walk the eightfold path of enlightenment and perfection by our own efforts. We cannot achieve Buddhahood by learning, meditation, rituals, and good deeds. Human effort is not enough to save us. 12th century Buddhist priests. So they made up their own sect, Jodo Shinshu of Buddhism. And in that sect, they have crafted something that looks very much like the gospel. Have faith in Amida. That's your only hope. And if you have faith in her, you'll receive salvation. There's the rest of the story, and I've got copies of it if you're interested. But we don't even need the Bible, but the Bible makes it very clear that there is none righteous. But as we learned in those verses at the start of our study of Romans, now a righteousness from God has been revealed not by trying to obey the law, but receiving the gift of what God has done. We can be made right with God by putting our faith in Jesus, who became a sin sacrifice for us. We are made right with God. That is what Paul says when it's righteousness by faith. Chapter 4. Where is the illustration of this? Well, Paul goes back to the Old Testament. It's Abraham, isn't it? That's what chapters 4 is about. Abraham was declared righteous not because of his deeds, but because he believed God. The scripture says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. God did for him what he could not do for himself. Salvation for Abraham was a sheer gift not based upon his performance, but on his relationship with God by faith. Chapter 5. How is justification by faith demonstrated? Well, chapter 5 says, while we were utterly helpless, sinners, in fact, enemies of God, Jesus died for us so that now we can become friends of God. Adam's Disobedience got us into this mess. Jesus' perfect obedience and life get us out of this into eternal life. And then chapter 6, what is the potential for holy living? Giving up that old life of tyranny under the law because we're buried with Christ. That's the picture of baptism, isn't it? We're buried with Christ and made new and alive uh, in him. As the message says, I'm using the freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time, the more you did what you felt like doing, not caring for, about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different it is now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness. That's the old life. That's the new life pictured in baptism. Chapter 7. What is the problem with holy living? Well, in chapter 7, as you recall, we run into a buzzsaw uh, into the wall, trying to keep on the right side of the law. Uh, the law gets us into trouble, we find out. So Paul answers the question, is the law evil? No. The law is good and righteous and holy. 
The law is like a mirror. That's the purpose of the law. You get up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror. You think, I hate you. <laughs> and then you go away. No, you, you fix yourself up to come to church or go to work. The law is to show us what we really look like. It's like an it's like an X-ray or an MRI that reveals our cancer. The law can't change you. The law can't make you. It can it can show your need? It drags you down and shows you up. We think of our hearts as like a quiet pond until all the muck and mud from the bottom of the pond gets stirred up. And that's really the nature of our hearts, isn't it? That's what the law reveals to us. So Paul says desperately in verse 24 of chapter 7, can anybody deliver me from this mess? I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there anyone who can do anything for me? That's the real question. And then his answer, thank God the answer is Jesus. That brings us to chapter 8, the chapter we're looking at today. The question that this chapter answers, and will continue, it's a rich, full chapter, an exciting chapter. It's the climax of, of the uh, gospel, the argument so far in the book of Romans. What is the power of holy living? And then this marvelous verse 1 of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. I don't have a tattoo, but if I get one, the first tattoo I'm going to get is that verse on my arm so that I can re remind myself and I can show Satan there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the bottom line of the gospel. That's what we need either to tattoo on our arms or etch on our minds and hearts. That's the glory of the gospel. The power of the Spirit. Not just trying harder, but embracing what the Spirit of God is doing in us. So our obedience when we become Christians is not to, not to earn God's salvation. There is no condemnation. Christ has died. He's given us salvation as a gift. But rather out of joy and out of gratitude to live for his glory. So we need to give up DIY religion. Do it yourself. That's the law. That's the old pattern that Paul is trying to show us. We'll, we'll, won't get us there. Um, if, we, if we're saturated with that, the glory of of the gospel and forgiveness, it will be not only our own, own liberation, but it will be evident in the way we treat others. I think of a story. Um, I was happened to be in Washington, D.C. at a conference and attended Church of the Savior. And in that particular Sunday, a guy was being um, welcomed into the membership of that church. And somebody sitting beside me said, this guy is a wonderful guy. And then he said, he told a story. He said, he works uh, as the head of a, a very important laboratory in D.C. And uh, one day at work, one of his employees was moving a million-dollar machine and dropped it. 
And this boss, this man who was being uh, accepted in the church, he said, he put his arm around the employee and said, I think we need to go out for ice cream. That's somebody who's been liberated by the gospel and who can treat others with that same liberation and that same hope. I love Jesus and I love ice cream. (laughs) So if we fail, Jesus says, I've got you covered. Don't worry. It doesn't get better than that. The question is, do we believe the gospel? Now you have some quotes here from several sources, but especially Tim Keller. Tim says, we say we do, but when it gets right down to it, we don't. We don't believe the gospel in the depth and the implications of what it really is. That means we can continue to understand the gospel and, as Keller says, how it affects everything in our lives. I won't try to read these quotes for you now, but these are from several different sources that people are saying exactly the same thing. We say we believe the gospel and we've come to Christ, but but then we get back into that old rut of trying to save ourselves, believing that somehow we've, we've got to make the grade or God won't be pleased with us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. There's nothing that you can do to change God's perfect love for you. That's the gospel. So read those quotes, and I'll give you some more next week because there's so many rich quotes about the importance of the gospel. Keller says, we fall back into self-salvation. That's the default mode of the human heart. So we need to keep, as Luther would say, keep preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. So we understand that everything we do is affected by the freedom that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Now our passage for today, for today, verse 12, you have it in your text. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature or your flesh urges you to do. So I'm using the word sinful nature or flesh. Different translations use either one of those or others. Uh, and there's a definition. The sinful nature or the flesh is what we are when rebellion against God and insubordination and hostility to God rule our bodies and our minds. That's the flesh. That's the sinful nature. Paul says here, we have no obligation to that flesh, to those urges, to those drives. In Jesus, we are debt-free. Imagine somebody has graciously paid off the mortgage of your home. Would you keep on making payments? You have no more obligation. You would do like my neighbors did. They had a mortgage-burning celebration party. So what does the flesh tell you to do? The flesh says, pay up knocks on the door, sends you a bulletin. You need to pay your rent. So we need to take out our certificate, paid in full, signed by Jesus, and tell the flesh to forget it. I don't owe you, as the 
as the message says, and I brought this as a show and tell, I don't owe you one red cent. Or we could say one silver yen. They're equal to about the same thing today. We don't owe the flesh anything. So don't listen to those voices that say, you need to do this. You're, um, you're guilty for this. You're responsible for this. You have no more obligation in Jesus. No giddy, to put it in cultural terms. That means even the culture, the customs, the practices around you, if they don't bring glory to God, you have no obligation to obey those. You have no obligation to friends, Christian or non-Christian, who would tell you to do this or that if it does not please God. You're free. Verse 13. For if you live by the flesh, the sinful nature, what it dictates, you will die. Now, this is not talking about physical death. Everyone will die physically. This is talking about eternal death. And this is describing not the person who's put their faith in Christ, losing their salvation. Rather, it's describing the person who's still living, paying attention to the urges and the callings and the temptations of the flesh. 13b. But, if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Put to death. Kill. Whoa, that sounds like war. You say, why? I thought Jesus brings peace. One of my favorite books when I was a young Christian was a book called The Fight by John White. And the thesis of John White's book is that we are at war. The world is at war. The world is at war with God. We read that in chapter 5. We're enemies of God. Again, in chapter 8, we're hostile to God. That's the nature of the flesh. That's the way it is. That's the state of the human heart apart from God. So there's constant war. Now, people may say, well, you know, I, I'm not at war with God. I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't. I don't even think about that. Well, it's either you're for God or you're God's enemy. And if you're living in the flesh, there's no way to please God. You are his enemy. So the book, The Fight, says um, when you put down your gun and surrender to God, you can have peace with God. But the war is not over. You've just changed sides. Now you have a new enemy who is still out to destroy you. In fact, it's not really a new enemy because all along he's been trying to destroy you by making you obey the flesh. But now he emerges an even more fierce enemy because now you're on Jesus' side. The fight continues. What happens when a huge cockroach shows up in my kitchen? First of all, I hear a blood-curdling scream. And that's Carolyn. You think I'm kidding. (laughs) Then I come running on full alert. When I find out that it's a cockroach, I'm on immediate mission. Kill it. Kill it. Which way to go? But what if I said, oh, honey, it's only a cockroach. It's not going to hurt anything. La cucaracha, la cucaracha. Well... 
what would happen. Probably that would be the end of my marriage. <laughs> but eventually the word would get around to the cockroaches and they would take over and they would kill me. They would kill us. In fact, we don't even try to fight the cockroaches by ourselves. We have a squad of cookie booty people that come in and put all kinds of stuff around the house. And that's just a simple daily example, isn't it? But maybe it's a reminder that sin is an even more serious enemy that we need to fight. We need to be on the alert. If sin, if we don't kill sin, it will kill us. In Colossians, Paul says, So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you, sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of the world. The list goes on in that passage. We get the point, don't we? These are things that would destroy our lives, so we're to put them to death. How do you do that? Well, not in your own strength and willpower. That's, that didn't work, remember? Remember Romans 7? We can't fight the devil on our own. We can't fight sin on our own. But, 13, verse 13, through the power of the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. That's a different story. That's a gospel story. Don't fall back into the rut of do it yourself legalistic sin management. Let, let the Spirit do the work. How does that happen? How does the Spirit lead us? Well, as you know, the battleground is our hearts. Sin is conceived in our minds. Remember Paul's image of the Christian soldier in Ephesians chapter 6? What is the one piece of armor that is the offensive piece of armor for that soldier. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We fight temptations and sinful nature with the Word of God, the truth. The flesh tries to convince us that we'll find satisfaction and joy and meaning and fulfillment, identity, etc., in this path. And the truth of the word of God says, no, that's a lie. Kill that temptation. Kill that thought with the truth of the gospel. We fight lies of the devil with truth. That's how we kill the deeds of the flesh. That's what Jesus did when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. There's our part, and there's the Spirit's part in this battle. We don't just kick back and... no. We're, we're a part of the process of sanctification, of being made holy, not in our power, but as we store the word of God in our hearts and use that, let the spirit use that, bring that to our minds to expose the lies that are tempting us, we kill those parts. We have a part. The spirit of God has the essential role. I have a wonderful battery-powered bicycle. Actually, it belongs to Carolyn. <laughs> but if I get on that bicycle and just sit on the seat, it doesn't go anywhere. But as soon as I start to pedal, that battery assist kicks in. 
and empowers my effort if I'm as though I'm hardly pedaling. That's sort of a crude illustration, but that's what the Spirit does. As we take our step to recall, to talk to God, to talk to the Spirit of God as we face temptation, the Word of God kicks in and kills and empowers us. If your bike doesn't have a battery, then you are pedaling in the flesh. We need the Spirit to fight against the flesh. I'll share with you an illustration that I got from John Piper's sermon on this very text. Piper says, a missionary couple was with us ministering among the refugees here in the cities last year, that is, Minneapolis. Now they're headed with three small children to a country in Africa which is so sensitive that they can't name it. Their February prayer letter was one of the clearest examples of how to put sin to death by the spirit that I've ever seen. They listed the sins that were threatening them and then gave the promises of God that they were using to put these sins to death. Whereas the constitution of this country, they wrote, may say one thing, the word of God says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. When fear, again, they write, when fear says, what if this happens? Faith says, do not fear, I am with you, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When worry surfaces, faith responds, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. When doubt and frustration scoff, they'll never change. This is a waste of time. Jesus looks us in the eye and responds, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So Piper says, Learn from our missionaries, learn from the Apostle Paul, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, not by works of the law. Kill sin by the Spirit, by the promises of God, purchased by his blood, and set your mind on them. Bank on them. Be satisfied with them. The power of sin will be broken. Sin will not have dominion over you. Jesus Christ will be magnified in your body. So, my question would be, how equipped are you with the word of God to kill the deeds and desires of the flesh under the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit. What can you do? Well, maybe you can do like these missionaries did, as at least they said in their prayer letter. You can make a list of perhaps the, the sins you're struggling with, a list of however many, and then begin to collect the promises in the scripture that answer those things. Meditate on those. Let the Spirit of God sink those deeply in your heart so that you'll be able to put to deep de death the deeds of the body. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit are, of God are children of God. So you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. 
Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. That's a term of intimacy, isn't it? We sang about God as our Father this morning. I remember a Bible teacher saying, he was in Jerusalem once and and he was approaching in the bus station and heard a little boy say, Abba, Abba, as he was running for his father. And just that struck him. That's the, the intimacy that we have with our father, that we can call out to him and know that he recognizes our voice and hears our voice and responds to that. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. We can speak a whole sermon about our inheritance in Christ. Um, Piper says we are heirs of the world. We are heirs of God himself. And our inheritance will include someday our redeemed and glorified bodies. But I would like to just one mention one aspect in closing of our inheritance. Our inheritance is tied to the covenant promise that was given to Abraham way back in the beginning of the Old Testament. Galatians 2 says, We are Abraham's offspring. We are heirs according to the promise. What was the promise given to Abraham? I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And someday I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. That was Abraham's inheritance. That's our inheritance too, as, as, God's offspring, as Abraham's offspring. We are children of that same covenant promise. And that's part of our inheritance. We have the privilege and responsibility to steward that inheritance in this life, here in this church, in a special way as we gather weekly with people from all the nations. God wants to bless the nations through us. Whether that's a morning service like this or whether that's an ICF where we meet international students, that's part of the inheritance, isn't it? That's part of the privilege. That's what was promised to Abraham and that's what was promised to us. So steward your inheritance. Use your inheritance. Be blessed as Abraham was as you bless, bless others. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the unfathomable truth of how we have been set free in Christ. I pray that we would continue to explore the richness and the depth of the gospel and connect that all the areas of our lives, areas where we struggle and realize that we have been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.